Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. Uh, my name's Andrew Murray. This is the October 2019 uh, broadcast uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, I think it's actually been just over 10 years. Um, we've been doing our monthly 7 till 8 p.m. call-in, given the loose topic of alternative uh, holistic medicine um, with Dr. Ray Pete. Now, uh, for those of you who've never heard him, uh, we'll be introducing Dr. Pete in a moment. Uh, for those of you who do know him uh, and have read uh, his uh, articles, his newsletters, the books that he's written, uh, or if you've been fortunate enough to attend uh, any of the lectures that he's given uh, after graduating, um, you'll understand that he is a pretty deep thinker. Um, over the last 10 years, we've covered a wide range of topics uh, on health, uh, alternative health, uh, biosciences, uh, and all those subjects around it. And Dr. Pete has a pretty broad uh, education, background, understanding uh, of physiological processes and uh, we're very fortunate to have his input on the show. So uh, the lines are open. It's a live call-in show from 7.30 till 8. 7.30 till 8. People are invited to call in with any questions uh, related to the continuing topic of false narratives, misconceptions about things uh, we're told are one way, but actually when we look at the science... They're actually not. Um, and uh, a continuing part of Dr. Pete's writing uh, his newsletters uh, on serotonin. Uh, the number, if you'd like to call in after 7.30, it's 707-923-3911. Once again, 707-923-3911. Uh, my background has been uh, in herbal medicine. I graduated in 1999 and uh, have since practiced herbal medicine and researched and developed uh, best methods uh, and in the last 10 years have been uh, working with Dr. Pete getting his input on challenging cases and other cases that were largely not responding uh, but I think uh, in retrospect now certain elements of an approach to that uh, were missing at the time, and myself, like many other people um, who did a mainstream medical herbal medicine education in England, um, pretty much got the facts presented to them erroneously, and uh, not all of it erroneously, but a lot of uh, fairly pivotal and foundational parts of physiology that are just not accurate. So, uh, Let's uh, go ahead and introduce Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, you're with us. Yep. Hi. Okay, thanks for joining us. Um, for those people who perhaps have not heard you uh, or your work and your background, your life, would you just give us a rundown of your academic and professional uh, background before we get started? Um, my, my first uh, teaching job happened to be in, in biology, but... I had been studying linguistics and the humanities and mostly was teaching in those areas uh, for about 10 years after uh, getting my master's degree. Then I 
uh, went back to uh, get a Ph.D. in biology, uh, University of Oregon, 1968 to 72, I was there. Uh, and since then, I've been uh, following up on interests I had all through the 1960s in, in biology, uh, brain function, uh, and how uh, social interaction and environmental influences affect our biology. Okay, thank you. Uh, just before we do get started, um, can I ask the engineer if there's anything that can be done? Because I noticed uh, last month, and I think it's happened before now, there's quite a hum on the line. And when I listen to the audio archives, that uh, hum is very... I can concerned. try calling them back and see if we get a different a different line. Okay, Would you like me to try that? that? That hum's coming directly from that line yeah. that you're using, is it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know how much how much mileage there is in it. I'm just wondering if there's any feedback in the studio or not. Oh, no. Uh, no, it's, all right, it's well, on that line. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going, and then maybe sometime halfway through we can quickly chop over and see if it makes a difference. But uh, I can actually, I, I can, do you have two lines on this number I'm calling, Dr. Pete? Because I can try calling from one of the other studio lines where you're on. Do you have call waiting? I, I, no. no, I don't. Okay, well, uh, if it gets unbearable, we yeah. will try calling again and, and, and it's maybe also from a different with line. Callers, when the people call in, it's sometimes very difficult to hear them because there's a lot of humming. On. Believe it or not, they have a harder time hearing you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, without any further ado. Uh, Only the dedicated call in. All right. <laughs> and there's a lot of them. Okay. All right, well, once again, let's put that number out. It's 707-923-3911. Okay, so Dr. Pete, um, Again, the kind of the misconceptions, things that we're told are a certain way, we find out they're not, uh, and it becomes ingrained in our minds and our psyche, and people repeat it often. Uh, the blood-brain barrier, I mean, I've always, when I was studying physiology, uh, I was told that the pia mater, the dura mater, and the arachnoid mater formed those meninges, and that the blood-brain barrier existed to keep certain pathogens and toxins out, although I know things like cysts can get into the brain, and they're certainly a pathogen. Uh, what's your opinion? I know, know you have a very fluid, very fluid understanding of the body and red blood cells and how they definitely move around a lot and how communication is just not the way you'd read it in a normal 21st century physiology text. But how do you understand the blood-brain barrier and its function? Um, it relates to the um, general idea of, of uh, uh, integrity of tissue and cells. Uh, and uh, when something goes wrong with the tissue, uh, uh, an energy f failure, for example, uh, any tissue loses its um, barrier function or in integrity. And uh, things that are inside uh, leak out, and things that are outside can get in, uh, and uh, different tissues uh, are uh, composed of different degrees of, of, uh, of fatty material and proteins, but uh, every cell, uh, when it's in a highly energized state, uh, the whole cytoplasm has a fat-loving property, a hydrophobic uh, property. Uh, the idea of a, a membrane uh, barrier on, on the surface of a cell uh, is uh, really a, a myth. Gilbert Ling uh, okay. 
spent 40, 50 years disproving that myth. Uh, that it's really the structure of the cytoplasm that creates a barrier between any cells inside and its outside. Uh, and uh, Russian researchers uh, in the middle of the last century showed that the energy level of the cell is what uh, governs its barrier function. A high energy state, the cell has a lipid-loving uh, quality, takes up fat easily. And when it's de-energized, a, a water-soluble dye will leak in it. Uh, that has been demonstrated for more than 100 years uh, on uh, simple organisms as well as a tissue culture. So it's, it's really an old idea, mm -hmm. but about 50 years ago, someone demonstrated in rats uh, that the, uh, the lipid-loving quality of the brain is what governs the so-called barrier function. The brain uh, has to live at a, a very high energy state, and in that high energy state, it's more hydrophobic or fat-loving. Okay. Uh, and these researchers uh, put an emulsion of, I think it was soy oil, uh, into the carotid artery of a rat and then measured uh, the content of the blood coming out uh, of the, uh, the vein draining the, the brain. Mm -hmm. And they found that on a single pass through the brain, 17% of this fat was taken up from the blood. Uh, and if you imagine that when you're under stress, uh, your uh, blood uh, becomes loaded with uh, uh, unbound uh, fatty acids, free fatty acids that travel on the, on the uh, albumin in the blood. And uh, hormones, as well as uh, free fatty acids, uh, travel on the albumin. Okay. And when you're under stress, the increased free fatty acids will, will uh, displace those hormones, and uh, the albumin uh, delivers large amounts of free fatty acids or uh, fat-soluble hormones uh, to the uh, capillaries uh, serving the brain. Okay. And uh, the the, uh, the, fact, the fact that the fat solubility is what governs uh, the entry uh, that that was well established, but uh, people still resisted the idea that uh, hormones could uh, uh, freely get into the brain without having a, a special transporter. Right. Uh, but as long as they're able to be carried on albumin, albumin can deliver it its burden right into the brain. And uh, the water solubility uh, of tryptophan has uh, been one of the arguments that, that uh, people insist that the huge amount of tryptophan uh, produced in your intestine and carried on your platelets mm -hmm. can't get into the brain to influence your behavior. Huh. Even though... Uh, when people had uh, uh, a tumor, the um, uh, carcinoid 
tumor, yeah. I think it was called, mm-hmm. uh, that produces uh, huge amounts of, of uh, serotonin. Uh, they were characteristically uh, having emotional uh, turmoil. Uh, there would be a surge of serotonin, and the, their skin would show uh, vasoconstriction and vasodilation alternating, uh, and their emotions would have extremes of ups, ups and downs that went with the, uh, these surges of, of serotonin. So there's a, a good medical history of the effect of, of intestinal uh, serotonin getting into the brain. And serotonin itself powerfully breaks down barriers, uh, including the blood-brain barrier, so-called. Okay. Uh, the, the lungs and the brain happen to be uh, the best equipped with enzymes that destroy serotonin, okay. uh, the monoamine oxidase is very concentrated in these capillaries. Uh, so normally, uh, when, when the blood uh, passes through the lungs, uh, it happens that the, the surge of oxygen changes the pH and carbon dioxide content and causes uh, serotonin to be released uh, from the platelets where it can be destroyed by these uh, MAO enzymes in the lining of the the lung. And the same thing should happen in the brain. Uh, The MAO should be detoxifying all the serotonin that reaches uh, these capillaries in the brain. Uh, But under the influence of a nutritional problem or too much stress where you're simply uh, pouring out gigantic quantities of serotonin, Mm -hmm or when your uh, other hormones are disturbed, such as high estrogen, will inhibit the MAO, and and the capillaries fail to detoxify the serotonin. So uh, then the serotonin is free to enter the brain and disturb uh, the brain function. Uh, Getting... That's uh, a a very rounded rounded, uh, breakdown of uh, all of the inherent... Uh, activity and the uh, the problems surrounding that the uh, does the bilipid membrane does that exist i mean in terms of the hydrophobic and hydrophilic components of it lining up uh to form this kind of barrier to either water or fat soluble components is that accurate or i mean because i always always um kind of amazed me when i first started doing physiology and basic physiology and looking at cells and all the cells and the lipid membrane and looking at cholesterol um do you, is that lipid membrane is that a reality or is that again another very fluid uh relationship with the cell um in an old medical book uh, <laughs> from the early 19th century i saw that uh, the, the treatment for a burn or an ulcer to, to close up the uh, weeping yeah. uh, wound on, mm-hmm. the, on the surface of the body, they used uh, 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 osmic acid, okay. uh, o- <laughs> osmium tetroxide Osmium. solution. Right. Uh, and uh, that was 
to create what they called a false membrane. Oh, like an eschar. Yeah, its first use in medicine, it huh. was defined as to create a false membrane. Okay. When the first electron microscopes uh, started looking at cells, they didn't find the uh, membrane that they had theorized had to be there. And, and meanwhile, uh, Gilbert Ling was demonstrating uh, why the, the cell behaves electrically as it does with, without needing a membrane. But uh, within two or three years, someone discovered that they could make use of this osmic acid uh, false membrane creator, and they did produce a membrane on cells. Ever since then, they've been able to produce a, a membrane consistent with the current theories. At first, the membrane was very thick to suit the theory of the time, but as the tendency towards this lipid bilayer membrane took root, they they had to adjust their membrane-making technology to suit this idea of, of a single bilayer. It's, it's almost a religion. Uh, yeah, when I was... Uh, Taking a course in uh, electron microscopy, uh, I tried out different stains, not just osmic tetroxide, and found that I could make a cell look like an onion membrane all the way through. Okay. Again, I, it's a little bit off the uh, off the uh, post here, but um, talking about electron micrographs and just looking back in the past uh, shows that we've done in terms of viral inclusions that uh, these things often have been shown to be completely fabricated not actually any part of any virion for example when they're looking at virology and they show you these these viruses that they are uh, you know showing on a scanning electron micrograph for example um, yeah the Harold Hillman who died mm -hmm. not long ago yeah. uh, wrote some books showing how official Biology is really all artifacts. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's stop there for a second. Okay, so you're listening to Ask uh, Your Ab, Dr. KMUD Garbaville, 91.1 FM. Uh, from 7.30 till 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with questions uh, about this month's continuing subject of misconceptions uh, and looking at serotonin inflammation and serotonin reuptake inhibitors and monoamine oxidase inhibitors and all of these things that we're told are good for you, like serotonin and melatonin, uh, and they're happy hormones, and actually how the science that Dr. Pete's bringing out here, which has been known for quite some time, um, is actually showing exactly the opposite, but it's such a deeply rooted investment in our consciousness that it's so difficult to break away from it. Um, anyway, the number here, if you live in or outside uh, the area, 707-923-3911. Um, Dr. Peter, getting back quickly to the blood-brain barrier, you've, uh, you mentioned obviously that, that the brain is an extremely uh, energy-hungry organ uh, consuming a lot of glucose, and it's 90-something percent plus cholesterol, correct, the white matter? I don't know what percent, oh. very right. high percent. Okay. Well, what I was trying to get at, though, for, for the fact that it consumes a lot of energy, it's lipid-rich, uh, we've all been told at least in school when we're studying the, this blood-brain barrier exists as some protective mechanism to keep the contents of the regular vascular system out of the 
out of the brain. Um, but obviously, like I mentioned initially, things like, uh, you know, people, patients have had uh, brain trepanning done to remove cystic uh, cystic formations in the, in the in the brain from pigs, uh, you know, uh, producing a tapeworm rather producing these cysts. Uh, things do get by the blood-brain barrier quite regularly, and it's it's not a strictly mechanical uh, system that prevents the ingress or egress of certain substances. It's actually quite fluid, and it very much depends on the energetic. Um, Gosh, I don't know, the energetic reserves of the organism, how well energized the cells are, how how much energy the organism has in terms of its ability to keep things coherent. And when the energy breaks down, uh, you get uh, diseases uh, based, based on the excess permeability, the, the breakdown of the so-called barrier. Right. Uh, multiple sclerosis and this is when you talk about estrogen producing leakiness in uh, leaking contents and excess edema water uh, you know uh, uptake into cells and yeah uh, this morning I got an email from a woman who uh, experienced what the myth does to the medical practice uh, he was found to have extremely high uh, um, uh, creatine phosphokinase, okay. a CK or CPK yeah. enzyme in her blood, as well as a very high uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH. Okay. Is, that, is that CPK, is that um, muscle breakdown byproduct? Or? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> the doctor assured her that the, the muscle leaking that large amount of enzyme couldn't have anything to do with hypothyroidism, that it must be a, a sign of... <laughs> Uh, uh, autoimmune disease and uh, autoimmunity is now a a great medical business and fixing the thyroid function isn't uh, of much (laughs) interest Uh, but uh, uh, the the knowledge that hypothyroidism causes muscle disease uh, goes back a hundred years easily Mm -hmm. it was a diagnostic basis for for considering hypothyroidism uh, if a person had swollen muscles. Old textbooks showed little kids with massively swollen muscles, uh, and then when they would give them a thyroid hormone, the muscles would go back to looking like little kids' uh-huh. muscles. And this would be through uh, edema, water retention? Uh, yeah, 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 the swelling of the muscle. <laughs> and uh, that the amount of exertion uh, that it takes to injure the muscle. Like if you uh, lift a barbell uh, too many times, your muscle will get hot and swell up. Right. Uh, but if your thyroid is low, uh, it gets hot and swells up uh, with very little <laughs> effort or no effort. Uh-huh. That makes me think, uh, again, it's a little bit off the beaten track here for the uh, purpose of the show's questions I wanted to get through to you. Um, but chronic wasting disease, um, that is an interesting um, an interesting definition of a process that they want to say is uh, prevalent in the animal population here in uh, in the States. I know in England the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in cows uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy and that whole prion supposedly based disorder. That that again, in terms of chronic wasting, that that whole that whole physiology there seems 
very much like a very energy wasting process that uh, yeah the thyroid hormone is our basic anabolic right. hormone yeah okay okay so do you do you think i mean so i not wasn't even going to ask this question too but in, in terms of chronic wasting disease um what do you think what do you think is probably the the main deficit there you think that's a, a, a deficit in energy production based on thyroid or uh um, well uh, around 1960 hans selye Mm-hmm. I was working on exactly that, a, a muscular dystrophy. Okay. And he could experimentally produce muscular dystrophy just by uh, giving an animal serotonin. Okay. Uh, and uh, when thyroid function goes down, uh, serotonin goes up. Uh, and uh, either removing the thyroid or giving serotonin or both uh, will cause that. Okay. Energy failure yeah. that leads to a breakdown of the barrier function and leaking of of substance and uh, eventually atrophy. Wow. Okay. Well, I know we've got. I think we have one caller who's waiting in in the air. Okay. So it's it's seven thirty basically. But um, people listening, if you want to call in uh, from now to eight o'clock, please do. The number seven zero seven nine two three three nine one one. Uh, we've got Dr. Raymond Pete joining us on the show, and we're going to keep covering uh, the parts of his newsletter on serotonin uh, and also tying this in with some of the misconceptions about what we've been told is, you know, positive uh, and beneficial for us, like serotonin and melatonin being happy hormones when actually they're very destructive and inflammatory hormones. So, uh, yeah, number two, uh, call is 707-933-3911. So let's get this first caller you're on the air call away from. I'm in Trinidad, California. Trinidad, California. Welcome to the show. What's your question? My question is, is there any hope for getting off of the SSRI, Lexapro? I have been on it for 17 years. Mm -hmm. I went on it in graduate school. Mm -hmm. I've tried to get off it a number of times over four-month weaning periods, and it triggers a withdrawal uh, deep sadness that's pretty out of control and then most recently a symptom i've never experienced before which is almost like a extreme highs and extreme lows yeah dr p okay so <clears throat> the lady withdrawing from ssri is experiencing extreme sadness and the other uh mood related uh, changes that ssris are supposedly indicated for in the first place one of the chronic effects of uh, serotonin uh, promotion uh, is to interfere with uh, cellular uh, respiration, uh, and that should be under the control of, of thyroid, but that gradually uh, is uh, depleted, and uh, uh, glycolytic energy production tends to replace it. So uh, you have to uh, get back to um, reactivate uh, oxidative metabolism while suppressing uh, the glycolysis and lactic acid production. And uh, carbon dioxide is uh, a main regulator of metabolism. Uh, it helps to uh, keep serotonin under control, keep oxidation running, and, and suppress the production of uh, lactic acid. And uh, working on Everything connected to the thyroid function uh, will gradually uh, wean you away from from that uh, uh, stimulation 
that comes from the SSRI. So do you th- do you think this particular person would be a a good candidate to self-assess their metabolic rate, uh, the temperature in their pulses, um, and then see from there whether or not they look like they are, <coughs> excuse me, uh, either low thyroid or not responding the body's not responding as it would normally in a healthy individual from uh, the stimuli of stimuli of thyroid hormone and then from there get to a place where they could slowly but surely use thyroid hormone uh, along with adequate dietary sugars and withdrawal from polyunsaturates and all the other negative things that affect thyroid function to get to a place where they could regain their proper control of their metabolism and uh, yeah, uh, vitamin D and okay. calcium are, are mm-hmm. usually helpful to get the thyroid going again. Okay, does that make uh, does that make any sense to you, Carla? Yes, uh, is that something that um, that 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 your office would uh, also uh, work with somebody on, or is that yeah, not? yeah, we could I could work with you on that for sure. Okay. You can, um, you can always contact me uh, anytime, Monday through Friday. Uh, I'll give out the information at the end of the show, but um, there's, there, I'm sure there's probably plenty that could be done for you if you've been, uh, you've been struggling with this this long. Thank you so much, both of you. I appreciate the time. I, I was curious about something you mentioned, carbon dioxide. Could that be one reason why exercise improves people's mood and regular exercise helps because you're producing more carbon dioxide? Well, yep. you're probably producing less of it if you're... Um, if you're working um, anaerobically exercising, you're probably blowing off more CO2 than you would if you didn't do that. Um, yeah, there, there's evidence that too much exercise, uh, when, when you uh, get to the point of fatigue, uh, serotonin is the signal that creates fatigue, and it can lead to the chronic fatigue syndrome, which tends to go with uh, inflamed muscles and mm-hmm. many other symptoms it's probably the endorphins you're uh, you're responding to and you say that exercise makes you feel good i think there's some of those some of those endorphins that are naturally produced as a probably as a part of a stress response to exercise like that that um probably dulls the pain of the exercise and they, they have looked at the uh, blood condition of of uh, uh, in intense um, like a soccer players or marathon runners mm-hmm. and find evidence of breakdown of the blood-brain barrier in all of these uh, very uh, high-stress right, because of athletic. All right, good. There's two callers on the air, so let's get these uh, callers get going here. So first caller, you're on the air. Where are you from, and what's your question? Hi, is it me? Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, what, where are you from? What I'm you from Utah. Utah, okay. What's and your question? My question is... Um, I've got a family member who uh, has been taking prednisone, Mm -hmm. I think five milligrams for the past several years. And uh, at this point, they'd like to get off of it, but it seems like they're reliant on it. Um, What would you suggest as a as a strategy to to uh, address that? Yeah. What were they What were they using prednisone for? Um, For initially a a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and pain in general. Right. Uh, Dr. Pete, uh, if somebody wants to withdraw from prednisone and its damaging effects and they've been put on it because they've got either, you know, inflammatory damage or changes in the pain, etc., etc., for the reasons that they prescribe uh, steroids, uh, what would you suggest? 
behind the original diagnosis, there, there was probably something like a vitamin D deficiency or low thyroid function. And so you want to make sure that you're not forgetting what led to the original prescription of the drug. Because the rheumatoid is just an inflammatory an inflammatory arthritis. So how you'd, you'd characterize that inflammation as probably being related to things like serotonin, uh, related to um, just basic energy deficit. And yeah, serotonin is elevated in all of the autoimmune so-called right. diseases. Right. And so uh, correcting the energy problem with uh, calcium, vitamin D, and, and thyroid is usually uh, the basis for... Uh, getting the original symptoms corrected, then mm-hmm. uh, you can just uh, taper off the prednisone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, does that... I see. Um, yeah. Is there any... Uh, how would you feel about addressing the prednisone use directly with uh, with something like pregnenolone um, uh, or yeah. other hormones? I, I've known several people who uh, accidentally got addicted to uh, a glucocorticoid such as prednisone who used um, either progesterone or, or pregnenolone to taper off it and got off it in just a few weeks. There you go. Okay. Good to hear. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for your call. Uh, okay, just to uh, remind uh, remind uh, people here, I uh, wanted to uh, question Dr. Pete again and just bring out this whole selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor just nightmare, yeah, poor information, bad information, very damaging in how the whole uh, serotonin uh, issue plays into uh, cell inflammation and just basic destruction. Uh, we've got another caller on the air, so let's get this uh, next caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hey, I'm right here in Garberville, and um, I'll make this as quick as possible. Uh, as far as I can tell, what you guys are talking about um, may key into what I'm going through. I'm going under a lot of stress lately um and certain health things have been flaring up uh aches and pains various other things and my mood has been pretty down um my question is though is kind of anecdotal uh, i've been craving a lot of milk like middle of the night i'll wake up feeling funky and i want milk mm-hmm. or during the day if i want something refreshing i want milk Good. i heard uh dr pete say Vitamin D and calcium are both essential to thyroid function, so I'm wondering, is there a chance that my stressed-out state is depressing my thyroid, therefore my body is wanting more calcium and vitamin D? Very much so, yeah. Dr. Pete? Uh, yeah, uh, almost uh, disregarding the, the uh, cause of, of the stress, uh, all of the stress hormones rise at night just because of the darkness, but any particular stress you're having uh, will just make it worse for all of the stress hormones. Uh, And serotonin happens to activate every uh, pituitary hormone, uh, and those all rise during during the night. And uh, uh, calcium Mm. and sugar and thyroid uh, are are the three three crucial things for... um, minimizing that nocturnal rise of stress. So basically it sounds like uh, my body is trying to tell me something. 
Yeah, but from a calcium and vitamin D perspective, the milk would definitely be a good uh, a good idea. And like Dr. Pete says, when your stress is uh, rising during the nighttime due to the fast uh, of not eating or drinking when you're asleep, um, milk's actually a very good... I mean, prior to bedtime, it's a very good idea uh, to consume milk and or sweet milk or custard or, you know, that kind of product because of the calcium content uh, and in the milk uh, if if it's fortified, you know, perhaps uh, the uh, vitamin D content in the milk. But that's why it's so important to make sure you get um, a good source of vitamin D, either Carlson Labs do a 4,000 IU per drop vitamin D. Uh, and vitamin D is just gaining more and more traction as a panacea for a lot of different inflammatory processes because of its utility in that. Excellent. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so it's uh, it's 20 to 8. Uh, the number, if you want to call in, it's 707-923-3911. Uh, Dr. Pete uh, expanding uh, his understanding and information of things that we are all misinformed about, and uh, serotonin uh, is his latest newsletter. Um, we mentioned last month, Dr. Pete, the, um, the whole travesty surrounding the SSRIs, their prescription, their over-prescription, the suicides, uh, resulting from it and the complicit uh, behavior of pharmaceutical companies as well as political entities and government even uh, for allowing this kind of thing to go unchecked when actually the evidence is there to very much damn uh, the product and how the whole misinterpretation of serotonin as a happy happy hormone uh, how this whole quip this cliche is just gripped hold of everybody and if you talk to anyone about serotonin or melatonin they will tell you oh it's, it improves your sleep or it makes you feel good and i found it so hard to find any information on the internet about serotonin being anything other than good for you that uh, i was going to get into it during this show uh, about some of the some of the things that are purported uh, by various entities for serotonin and how how it seems like there's absolutely nothing wrong with serotonin and serotonin has got the best <laughs> the best kind of advertising going for it but let's we'll get into that after this next caller because we do have another caller who's called in so let's take this caller a call away from what's your question uh from new york new can york. you hear me yeah could you speak up a little i think you may be okay yeah. um i have a couple of questions first one um you talked about pufa and how damaging it is and particularly it accumulates with age and Dr. Pete, I was just wondering if it's um, mitigated um, by taking vitamin E, uh, since it's very hard to calculate how much PUFA you take take in every day. Why wouldn't you, um, over time, be taking these small amounts of vitamin E to further protect yourself? I'm just curious because you don't take vitamin E, right? I I use it on my skin because uh-huh. it irritates my digestive system to take it orally, but I. I I think it is good to take a little bit of it. Okay, so you're saying so you, you're saying you do do that, but you do it safe, more safely by not orally, but putting it on the skin. Is, yeah. Is, yeah. Okay, so my concept, I, I got the right interpretation. Okay, so you talked about CO2. Uh, I think the somebody mentioned about running. A um, couple things on that. So when you run, if assuming you're healthy, I think you do increase your CO2 at least initially, and I think you mentioned. Once you get to the point of fatigue, and then you go over a level. But do you agree that initially, if you don't overdo it, and everybody's got their own limit in terms of their health and their capacity for for exercise, that you do increase your CO2 initially? Is that you agree with that? 
un, until you increase your lactic acid, and and that's the first sign that you're damaging yourself. Okay, so I know someone who, the minute they finish running, to take that risk into consideration, they go into, you know, a um, CO2-like dry bath. Does that help mitigate the risk and the damage that actually is underway if you push beyond the limit? Yeah, a CO2 bath is good almost for any condition, but especially if you're at the point of making lactic acid, it'll help to recover quickly. Right, okay. And the other question I, I had relating to thyroid, you know, the test that Broda Barnes, I, I think the way Broda Barnes got into this business is because he had to pick a gland, if I read his book correctly, and everybody else, the other glands were taken, so he did this. And obviously his experience and the number of patients he had over time gave him a massive amount of information. But there's, in my humble opinion, it's just an opinion, I've never met the man, but I think your knowledge, your depth and breadth of physiology and knowledge is just so much broader than his. And I'm just thinking that there must be a better way than the basic methods that, you know, the, the, the knee and other reflexes and the temperature, which is kind of imperfect. Oh, the oxygen consumption is by far the, the best. Oh, sorry, which one? Oxygen consumption. Can, how do you get that one? Uh, the, there might still be apparatus available uh, on the Internet, old used medical equipment uh, for measuring the BMR. Uh, they should cost about $200 because it's just a, an inverted tank and a, a measuring uh, indicator for how, how far you make the tank sink as you breathe the oxygen out of the air that's holding the tank up in the water. Uh, and uh, that was used medically uh, around the world uh, for diagnosing hypothyroidism. Uh, according to that, 30% uh, of Americans uh, were hypothyroid in 1940. Uh, and uh, uh, if you use that apparatus now, it's more like 60%. I agree. And, and particularly if you, if you do it by age group, it's even higher for old yeah. people like me. But... Um... Um, the other question, uh, uh, sorry, is, is um, uh, if you, so the, the imperfect ways of diagnosing hypothyroidism, you know, we've gone, th you've gone through those pretty well, but, and you mentioned pulse, but, but you know, to me, pulse is um, correlated to blood pressure. So what would you say about a person who, you know, you're not sure about whether they have it, but, you know, the, 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 the thyroid problem or whether it's like minor, but their blood pressure is 120 over 80. I'm just giving you, and it's always 120 over 80. When they sit down, they measure it's 120. You stand up, you're supposed to stand up to see whether it's really an accurate measurement, and it stays around 120 over 80 immediately after standing up. That means they're, they're, the blood pressure is stable consistently. Does that tell you anything that, since it's related to pulse, that might be you know, also some information that would give you insight into whether or not someone's chronically hypothyroid? Um, in my experience, that, that would mean very good nervous system energy uh, regulating things. Uh, but I've known a, a few people who can't increase their pulse, uh, even with exercise. That's me. I can't do that. I can't do it. You're right. Hmm. That's me. I'm sorry. Continue. Uh, well, that would be a, a good 
argument for uh, measuring your oxygen consumption because uh, you you can't uh, have any other explanation for for low oxygen consumption than a need for more thyroid. Yeah, the reason I say this because I have a pulse of around 60. I can maybe get it up to 70 sometimes when I go to the doctor, but I'm always 120 over 80. And I do the stand-up to double-check it. I'm always. They say, wow, your blood pressure is right on the money. Yeah, but my pulse, according I didn't, I tell them this, is, seems low. And they said, no, that you must be an athlete. You know, it's <laughs> typical. You know, cholesterol is another pretty good indicator uh, if you're cholesterol. Actually, if actually uh, what other quick story? So the doctor told me I had it like one... Um, no, 330 was my cholesterol, total cholesterol, right? And I'm about 60, right? Wow. Guy goes, oh, I want to put you on statins. I said, well, do you know that there's a guy from Stanford who said that it's salt? And, you know, and I said, no, I'm not going to take them, but I'll come back and see you. And I'm, so then what I did, I took some thyroid, um, but I also increased my salt, and I did a lot of the things that you suggest. Came back, dropped like 100 over 150 points. The guy was like, wow, that's incredible. Can I see you again? You know, just to confirm it. He goes, how did you do that? <laughs> And it's, literally, you've been saying this for 30 years, and no one wants to listen. And I just did the basic things, nothing fancy. And what you said is exactly correct. Anyway, you're, you're, you're a legend. Um, thank you very much for answering my questions. I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you for your call. All right, so we've got 10 minutes left here. If you'd like to call in uh, with questions related or unrelated, but related to uh, medical uh, issues or Questions, the number is 707-923-3911. Dr. Raymond Pete will be with us for the next eight minutes or so. Uh, So, Dr. Pete, I've hardly covered anything that I had uh, originally set out to ask you about some of these misconceptions, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing uh, because you've uh, spent a long time elaborating on some of the answers for this, and we've had plenty of callers. Um, I did want to do another misconception and I think next month uh, I'd like very much to carry on with the serotonin uh, yeah the serotonin mistakes uh, and um, just question you a little more about the whole uh, tryptophan and its conversion to serotonin and how uh, you know our diets are rich in tryptophan whether we like it or not unless we are very fastidious about it and we don't produce our own tryptophan per se to be uh, uh, you know, a synthesized de novo. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for the next month because there's another question I wanted to ask you about things that we've heard that it's just another example of how we get brainwashed into believing something that's not actually true. But we do actually have another caller who's called in here. So let's take this next caller. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Where Hi. are you from and what's your question? Hi, uh, this is the caller from Utah again. I uh, just had a, okay. a question related to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoy certain types of exercise, um, mostly uh, things that you could consider as a game, like basketball or soccer or volleyball. Um, and I noticed that um, those are way more fun than something like chess or something that doesn't involve exertion. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that um, it would be probably more ideal if you could uh, get that same sort of enjoyment from something that involves less energy expenditure or if maybe the reliance on something like that is a, is a symptom of something um, maybe unideal in the environment that kind of uh, makes you turn to something like that. Yeah, I think the experience of having fun or doing something 
meaningful powerfully overrides the toxic effects of, of lactic acid and serotonin and can push things back into shape uh, just because uh, that's how the uh, organism uh, builds itself, is doing meaningful things and having fun. Gotcha. So, um, but on the surface, it doesn't really seem like a sport really has that much meaning to it. So do you think that it might be a sign that you'd be looking for a more ideal environment if you do find yourself turning to things like that? Um, yeah, uh, work really should be uh, a fun exercise. Uh, so you, uh, But if you don't have that experience uh, uh, in, in your ordinary working activities, uh, I think it's good to have the game uh, type of exercise. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks again, Dr. Pete. Okay, I just wanted to interject there with um, something I read uh, a little earlier on that mentioned that the whole learned helplessness concept. Uh, Dr. Pete t- talked about various animal models uh, and the learned helplessness that uh, they experience as a result of just giving up and it's just all too much. It's actually mediated by too much serotonin. How, how, what do you say to that, Dr. Pete? Um, I, yeah, and it can be brought on by anything that overwhelms your, your uh, uh, self-regulation. Uh, I think a, a diagnosis uh, often uh, creates a, mm-hmm. a learned helplessness right. situation and the person yeah. uh, lets their serotonin get out of control. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point. I, I've, always, I've long said for a long, long time now that a diagnosis is probably the worst thing that a person can get. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I think. Why do they call it a diagnosis? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I don't know. Uh, but I often think that, uh, as organisms, as energetic spiritual beings that we are, when we get a diagnosis of something that is quote unquote terminal or just serious, I think it's the worst thing in, the worst thing in the world to hear. Because I think, uh, energetically it just whacks you for six. And, and, um, and the diagnosis is almost certain to be wrong in, in some of its <laughs> explanations, and it, it makes you think of yourself as a machine uh-huh. that need, needs uh, fixing. Needs fixing yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 cover a little more of that uh, maybe next month. But like I said, next month I really want to. I, I want to play devil's advocate with you uh, so far as serotonin is concerned and explore that link, go down the rabbit hole with serotonin or rather with tryptophan uh, and its conversion into serotonin and how the whole industry uh, got generated with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that prevent its breakdown to enable the uh, serotonin in the membrane space there to last longer and to make you feel good and just to do all that good stuff when obviously there's a lot of research showing how dangerous it is. It interacts with the antioxidant industry, too. Okay. (laughs) They come together in very interesting ways. I bet they do. Good. All right. Well, uh, I've got plenty more questions I want to ask you, and we do still have about seven minutes. So talking about uh, oxidants, antioxidants, might be a good place uh, to finish up questioning you this month, but to start that for next month and then get into the whole 
uh, issue around tryptophan and how uh, we can cut this out of our diet as best we can, but how obviously it's needed. Um, there's a certain amount of serotonin that is part and parcel of regulating our physiology because there are certain things that uh, are implicated in serotonin's uh, you know, secretion that are quote-unquote necessary. Um, but the other dogma then uh, about oxidants and antioxidants, we're always told, oh, antioxidants are good for you. You know, they kind of mitigate the damage that uh, oxidants cause. And oxidation is a bad thing. You know, if you think about uh, a cut apple, the surface of a cut apple turning brown, uh, that's an oxidation reaction, no? And so it, oxidation is not a good thing, right? It's like, it's like rust. Uh, it's breakdown. It's the kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a failure, as it were, you know? So in terms of the antioxidant myth, um, have you got anything to say about oxidants and antioxidants that would better describe them? And then maybe we might not feel quite so uh, yeah, confused about the ox antioxidant myth that is, uh, you know, surrounding taking antioxidants per se for you know health benefits. One thing to keep in mind is that uh, cancer cells have a very powerful intrinsic antioxidant system uh -huh. and what you want to do to restore health is is to overcome that antioxidant system and uh, the Downs syndrome involves probably the crucial genetic problem it is a huge overdose of the antioxidant enzyme superoxide dismutase Got it. Yeah. a thing that is being sold in health stores <laughs> even right uh, but uh, when you add this extra gene for the superoxide dismutase to uh, animals or or cells in culture it it creates uh, accelerated aging uh, yeah. as in the uh, downs syndrome or or in alzheimer's disease uh, and uh, the uh, normal function of superoxide, uh, it's just an oxygen uh, molecule uh, with, with an extra uh, electron, and it seems to be the active agent in the monoamine oxidase enzyme for destroying hmm. serotonin. Okay. And so uh, the Down syndrome uh, platelet is unable to destroy serotonin, unable to hold it even. And uh, so uh, the, the person is saturated with free serotonin because the system isn't able to destroy it at a normal speed. Hmm, interesting. Now, they call they call uh, Down syndrome, it had the old name of trisomy 21, right? Because the, yep. the gene, well, yeah, the, the chromosome 21... Uh, there was th three copies, and then they said, okay, there's an extra 50% increase uh, in the products derived from that chromosome, of which uh, the gene encoding for superoxide dismutase was part of it. But I, I did read, and again, this kind of confused me a little bit, because um, I also read some other kind of quote-unquote conflicting information about that, saying that, the same chromosome also had the genes 
for uh, coding beta amyloid precursors, which have been implicated in uh, uh, Parkinson's um, uh, Alzheimer's in terms of the amyloid uh, protein deposition there, and also also encoded for other oncogenes uh, that cause these kind of negative uh, metabolic processes in Down's patients. So, but you, the, the amyloid protein uh, accumulates in many conditions uh, where you're simply uh, hypothyroid, for example, or, or under stress. Uh, huh. But it's possible that, that there are many uh, other defects, but the, the spectacular one is the, the failure of the platelet oxidize serotonin well it's two minutes to i'm going to have to cut you short there but thanks for joining us again and uh, next month we'll pick up uh where we left off i think we've got plenty to plenty to go on here and uh, hopefully uh re-educate uh as we go on so thanks so much for your time okay thank you okay so you've listened to ask your Arab doctor uh kmud garbable 91.1 fm uh, it's once a month from 7 to 8 p.m. and we take callers from 7.30 to 8. Uh, most people are uh, questioning Dr. Pete either about what he's talking about at the time or protocols they've been using, uh, giving him positive feedback about that as from tonight's patient person in uh, New York. That was good to hear about his cholesterol. Uh, Dr. Pete's been saying that for a long time about high cholesterol patients using thyroid to bring it down and it being a basic defect in high cholesterol. Uh, is that most of it's due to hypothyroidism. So Dr. Pete's information is found at www.raypete.com. Uh, he's got lots of articles that he's been publishing here for several decades now. Uh, he's written several books, and uh, he's got a wealth of information. Uh, the shows, unfortunately, uh, you know, I've got about two years' worth of these shows to post on the Internet on our website, which is westernbotanicalmedicine.com. Uh, I'm a graduated medical herbalist uh, from England, uh, producing herbal extracts, but uh, Dr. Pete's uh, wisdom has also guided uh, my practice in uh, in seeing people. So anyway, uh, yeah, westernbotanicalmedicine.com, raypeat.com. I'll see you next month at 7 o'clock, third Friday of next month.